You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group and American National Insurance. Grilling season is here, and you may be looking for the perfect wine pairing for your delicious summer cooking. The Federalist offers a lineup of American craft wines that are bold, full-bodied, and crafted with as much quality and character as the men they celebrate. Each bottle featuring audacious takes on traditional styles. The Federalist is the perfect companion to anything that you're grilling up tonight. You can use promo code TDF20 to get 20% off your first bottle at uncork.com. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For. People who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and brilliant minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Chris Moon. For me, that's the work that I'm just incredibly motivated by, this idea of the Beard Foundation trying to lead the industry forward to be more inclusive and more reflective of what food in America actually looks like. That was Chris Moon, the president and COO of the James Beard Foundation. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows we love to toast great restaurants And so does the James Beard Foundation. The James Beard Foundation Awards are literally like the Oscars of the restaurant world. But many people don't realize that the James Beard Foundation does so much more than just hand out awards. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to Chris, hear his career journey, and hear more about the important work of the James Beard Foundation. Please enjoy my interview with Chris Moon. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on To Dine For, the podcast. I have so many questions and I'm so excited to talk to you today, but I'm going to begin this podcast the way I begin all my podcasts. And I actually can't think of a more difficult question to ask you than the one I'm about to ask you. It's difficult for most people to answer the question, where is your favorite restaurant? It's even harder if you have spent any time in New York City. But you are the president of the James Beard Foundation. So (laughs) it's almost unfair to ask you this, but I am going to ask you anyway. If you could take me anywhere for a meal, where would you take me? 
I knew you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> um, and so I prepared a cheeky answer because okay. at the James Beard Foundation to choose a, a favorite restaurant is like choosing a favorite child. Yes. So I was going to give you James Beard's response, which was his favorite restaurant was the one where they knew his name. Yes. But I will give you a place I'm currently really enjoying in New York, which is it. Shuket. It's a, a Yisha Nerdyaya's new uh, restaurant at 24th and 9th Avenue. She is the chef at Shuka, which is a great restaurant in New York, has been around quite some time and uh, in this past year opened Shuket, which is just spectacular, delicious, tasty, casual, small bites, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, lots of dips and breads and deliciousness. So I'm going to steer from steer clear of the favorite, but tell you what I'm enjoying right now. New I like it. Excited about Very that's political. What I, that's where I would take you. Very political, but yet a still a sincere answer, which is always, that's what I'm looking for. Because I always feel like someone's favorite restaurant begins to explain their story. And whether it's a neighborhood dive, whether it's their local hometown favorite, a great restaurant tells a story and it really says something about the person who chooses it. And obviously you were someone very much in the know of great cuisine. And so you've chosen a restaurant that it sounds like it's not only delicious, but hot and very, very unpretentious. It's very unpretentious. And I think one of the reasons that I have loved my experiences there it is because it is a place where you can taste the love in the food, as mm. cheesy as that sounds. Mm. Open kitchen, cheesy. it is about uh, small plates and sharing, which is how I love to dine, right? You taste more things, you 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 find, you feel the power of what can happen amongst people around food, around a table, particularly in a, a situation like that, where you're sharing and you're tasting a bunch of different things in a casual but elevated, lovely, lively environment. So... That's why I chose it. It's both yeah. delicious, but also the experience of dining there is the way that I like to dine. You're absolutely yes. right. Yes. And it's casual and yet you the food stands out. It's not about anything else exterior. It's all about the food and what you feel. I love this. Well, I'm, I'm really fascinated by your career trajectory. And I saw that you are a graduate of Boston University. And I was wondering, where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in Kansas City. Uh, Did in the you? suburbs of Kansas City. Yeah, a Shawnee, kind of Overland Park area. Born in Lawrence, Kansas, where KU is located. And then we moved to the Kansas City area when I was a few years old. And that's where I went to school before I headed off to Boston. Okay, so what brought you to Boston? What was your experience in college like? And what did you want to do when you were a college student? So I was not on this career path growing up whatsoever. I have always been very artistic. The music runs in my family. My grandmother was a piano major. My mom started as a classical piano major in college and then switched degrees. I've played the piano since I was five years old. And so music is very much a part of my, my family. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, I did a lot of singing, a lot of playing of instruments. I was in the band. I was in the theater. I did a lot of music theater in high school and studied voice and had decided that though I did not want to be an opera singer, I really believe in any art form of learning the fundamentals and the technique. Mm. And, you know, the, the basis of good singing is good technique. And that yes. is what classical singing and opera is really built on, right? Understanding vocal pedagogy and 
uh, and technique. And so I decided to pursue a vocal performance degree, was fortunate to get into the, the College of Fine Arts uh, at Boston University. And I was a, a voice major at BU, studying classical music, doing a little studying, continued studying of piano within school, and then participating kind of extracurricularly in music theater and, and that type of stuff on campus uh, throughout my four years there. And did you ever think that that would be your career path, that you would work in music, that you would work uh, perhaps in academia? No, the um, the aspiration was Broadway, mm. uh, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so it was go go to BU, get the foundation, get the techniques, get the get the skill, or refine that skill, and then move to New York and pursue music theater, the Broadway career path. So as soon as I graded, I'm, I did summer stock a couple of summers during college, which maybe if that's a term that's not known to people. Those are all those college kids that go away to do music theater yes, over the I'm summer familiar. at resorts and camps. <laughs> and I happened to do that at a beautiful resort in Maine called Quisisana um, for a couple of summers uh, before I moved to New York right after I graduated, started to pursue that path. Okay, so this is going to lead me perfectly into my next question, because I saw that you worked at one of my favorite restaurants, which was Jane. So now it's all making sense. So you moved to New York City, you think, hey, you have this dream of Broadway. And is that was Jane helping you get there? Meaning was that your job while you were trying to perhaps get a gig on Broadway? It ended up being my job. But actually, I was very fortunate when I moved to New York, given my skill and ability as a pianist, even though I didn't intend to pursue that path, I fell into a career as a professional pianist in New York, uh, which is what sustained me for the first four years that I lived in the city. So wow, you were a staff... professional pianist. Yes, I was a staff pianist at Pace University and AMDA, the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. I played for stuff off Broadway and at the Lucia Lotel Theater. I coached singers, audition prep, I played for just about anybody that wanted me to play for them. Um, I was cool. very, very fortunate. But four years into that, I woke up one day with very sore arms after playing the piano for 98 days straight in one <laughs> shape or another. Oh my God. And I, I distinctly remember it because it was 98 days when I looked at it and I was like, no wonder I am tired. <laughs> and just said, you know, this is not what I set out to do. And mm. I've been very, very fortunate, but this isn't where I see myself long-term mm -hmm. and gave it all up and decided I needed to pay the bills while I figured out the rest. And uh, that's how, and when I ended up at Jane started there as a waiter, I had worked in restaurants growing up in high school. So I had that, that skill and that experience and was fortunate to land at Jane uh, in a moment where I think still a busy restaurant, but was a very busy restaurant under former ownership and yes. the brunch in particular there was a very coveted <laughs> coveted brunch uh so i stepped into that madness well it's funny i i arrived in new york city in 2006 and so i saw that you were there in 2006 and at that mm -hmm. moment in time as we know restaurants can sustain themselves for long decades and have a lot of consistency, but they all reach sort of a zeitgeist of when they're really, really popular. And I feel like that moment, that was sort of an it restaurant. Jane was an it restaurant of that year, right when you were there. So that must have been- It was. A kind of like theater. I always say restaurants are theater because when you're in a restaurant that is having a moment and you were a part of it, you are like a character in a play. Didn't you feel that way? 
Absolutely. Yeah, that was the that was the summer of vanilla beans, French toast, and the yes. Jane Bloody Mary that everybody loved. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of the things that drew me to restaurants uh, in front of house in restaurants is that sense of it's showtime, right? There's the pre-shift and then the shift starts. And uh, I love people. I would say I'm an extroverted introvert. So there's a limit to that. But the idea of taking care of tables and engaging and understand what people want and what they're looking for and trying to facilitate that experience um, feels very much uh, akin to theater and this idea of kind of being on. I love that energy and enthusiasm of showtime, right? The adrenaline kicks in and eight hours later, you're like, oh, dinner service is done. Yes. Right? And it's different every day. It's the, it's, say, it's the same in some ways, but it's totally different with because the, the, the guests are changing. And so your experience is changing and you have an opportunity every day to start anew, start fresh and to really uh, provide hospitality in a tangible way to people that, you know, we all need great hospitality. So it, it's a it's an exchange of energy that you can feel, right? Absolutely. And there's, there's just nothing that compares to that or, or that replaces that in my mm-hmm. um, experience. I actually love the engagement of theater and an audience, That's mm-hmm. a, but it's a different engagement because when there's food involved in hospitality and food is one of the few things that we all, every single human shares in common, mm-hmm. we may not all share the same love of it or passion mm-hmm. for it, but it is one of the very few things that we all do every day or, or need to do eat. every day to sustain <laughs> ourselves. Yeah, and so this eat. idea of, you know, theater transforms people in a different way mm-hmm. emotionally and provides a really needed artistic outlet, but food is nourishment. And mm-hmm. so when you can be a part of facilitating that and making that happen and trying to deliver that experience to someone, whether it's a birthday, it's just Friday night out with friends, right? Whatever that may be. To me, that was hugely gratifying. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsor. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. 
So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Grilling season is here, and you may be looking for the perfect wine pairing for your delicious summer cooking. The Federalist offers a lineup of American craft wines that are bold, full-bodied, and crafted with as much quality and character as the men they celebrate. Each bottle featuring audacious takes on traditional styles. The Federalist is the perfect companion to anything that you're grilling up tonight. You can use promo code TDF20 to get 20% off your first bottle at uncork.com. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. You know, when I look at some of the work that you've done in the event space and I'm just curious as what led you to the James Beard Foundation, and you really have worked your way up. Um, you've been in many different roles. Can you kind of explain that journey? Of course. I was fortunate to hop from Jane to a couple other restaurants around the city, um, and I ended up at a restaurant called Sapa mm-hmm. uh, that used to be on West 24th Street. Uh, Patricia Yo was the chef there, and it was a big restaurant. And again, speaking of the zeitgeist moment mm-hmm. of restaurants, Sapa was very much in its moment and was a very busy, very large restaurant. And I went there and I worked in front of house as a waiter. I ended up stepping into management there and helping take on all of their special event bookings. Um, And during that time, got very close with Patricia, who is the executive chef. And after a couple of years working there, or a year, maybe a year working there, I had not been pursuing theater and had kind of realized that it had fallen to the side, but I didn't feel upset about that. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a moment of self-awareness for me to say, I kind of have stopped auditioning and stopped pursuing that path, but I'm not really missing the angst Mm -hmm. (laughs) of pursuing that professionally. And I think I've landed in an industry that feels really right. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually in a conversation with Patricia one night where I said, look, I've loved working here. I've loved the experience that I've had. But now that I've realized this is, I think, my industry, my career path, I want to think a little bit more intentionally about what the professional opportunities are within food and beverage. And it's very admirable to be a general manager. And and it's very hard work, working front of house in a restaurant. But I said, I'm curious what what else is out there? What other type of work is possible in the food and beverage industry? And so she and I had a bit of a brainstorm together and she was the one that actually said, you know, do you know anything about the James Beard Foundation? Mm. And at the time I did not, I knew nothing. And she said, take a look, you know, it's a small organization, the Beard House staff, there's not a lot of turnover. They've been there for decades, but, you know, maybe you could, you know, pick up a few shifts as a waiter at the Beard Foundation and get your foot in the door. And she said, I know somebody there, you know, I'm happy to make an introduction tomorrow and you can talk to them. So uh, I'll never forget, it's kind of very serendipitous. This was a Sunday night. And on Monday morning, she sent an email to Sal Rizzo was the director of operations at the James Beard house. At that time, she sent an email saying, Hey, I want to introduce you to Chris. He's been working for me. He's you know starting to think about the next step. Would you mind talking to him? And Sal wrote back and said, 
wow, well, I actually just gave my two weeks on Friday. So we're looking for a new director of operations at the James Beard House. So that was Monday. Wednesday, I had my first interview. Friday of that week, I had my second interview, which is with the, the former president of the Beard Foundation. And I started two weeks to the date <laughs> from that initial email at the James Beard Foundation as wow. manager of house operations. And coincidentally, my first day of work was the day of the James Beard Awards in 2007. So oh my I goodness. showed up. I showed up to the office. They said, this is your desk. This is your computer. Like, let's do your paperwork. Now go home and put on a black suit and meet us at Lincoln Center because tonight's the James Beard Awards. And, you know, as somebody somebody who had no idea what the James Beard Foundation was two weeks before that, I I was kind of like, okay. And then I showed up at Lincoln Center and 2,000 people in black tie James Beard Awards. God, where have I right? Where have I landed? The Oscars <laughs> of the restaurant industry. It, first of all, what an introduction! What a first day! Because wasn't that incredible? Like, had you not had that conversation, I mean, kudos to you for having the insight to think intentionally about your career and then seeking advice. But she really kind of put a spotlight on the path you should take, didn't she? She did. And she suggested, you know, a handful of, you know, you could go this route or that route or look into this route or that route based on your skill sets. But I just felt very much like it was meant to be given the timing and and the way that it came to be. So that was May of 2007. And other than a short stint where I left for a bit in 2010, I have been there since. Okay. That is an incredible story. Tell me, how has the James Beard Foundation changed, in your opinion, from 2007 on that first day when you put on that black suit to how it is now, right? It has changed dramatically. It's a completely different organization. And I I feel very fortunate to have come in when I did and to be in the roles that I've been in during that journey, that 15 years of being kind of right in the middle of all of that transformational change, just Mm -hmm. given what my, my roles were were throughout that process. And for me, that's what has kept me so long because that's what really interests me is the, the continued organizational evolution, Mm -hmm. making greater impact in the world. How do we continue to stand for something or stand for something in a more firm way? Um, And so in terms of the transformation, that period of time, you know, when I came into the Beard Foundation, we were still very much an organization that was all about celebrating excellence and fine dining, mm-hmm. meaning the traditional former definition of fine dining. The more expensive, the fancier, the white tablecloth, the better. Mm-hmm. If there's caviar and a foie gras on the table, everybody thinks it's boom, fabulous. Boom, boom. Done. Yes. Exactly. And not to knock that in any way, actually, right? This is very much the trajectory of fine dining in America, not just mm-hmm. at the Beard Foundation. But the organization was really, I think, celebrating and reflecting the trends and what consumers were supporting, right? This idea of kind of excellence in fine dining. And during the 15 years I've been with the organization, you know, there's really been a somewhat gradual over that period of time. I think to somebody externally, it looks like all of it's happened in the last three years and a lot has happened in the last three years. But Mm -hmm. um, during that 15 year journey, truly we started to lay the foundation for a lot of the change I think that people see today in terms of starting to have conversations about, well, what is the role of the independent restaurant community or the role of chefs in creating a better food system? Mm. How do we arm that community with the training and the knowledge and the skills 
to understand the responsibility that comes with platform and visibility Mm -hmm. and the opportunity that that presents to engage in a way where you can affect change. You can leverage that platform for the things that you care about. So not JBF saying, here's what you should care about, but us saying, here's how you put these skills to work on the things that you feel passionately about. We had a food conference for many years that started probably 2010-ish, which was about bringing thought leaders together to grapple with you know food systems issues. And so we're talking about policy and sustainability and all of that work. And so during this period of time, there has been this shift from just a focus on fine dining and kind of traditional definition of excellence to an understanding that our food system is complex. It is global in nature. It is interconnected and we are all a part of it. And the choices that we all make, including the people in restaurants who purchase food to put in front of all of us, those choices all make a difference. They all have an impact. And so this shift from being very transactional, if you will, in the old days of, oh, fine dining, fancy event, buy tickets, come, support this chef, discover something new, to an organization that is always trying to lead now from a place of impact and saying, okay, we're, we're a 501c3, we have a mission, we're supposed to stand for something and we do, in order to drive change in the world, you actually have to have a perspective. You can't be neutral. You can't just be a platform Mm -hmm. for convening. You have to say, we believe X. Mm -hmm. And then you have to put that stake in the ground and try to build programs and opportunities that further that vision. Let me stop you there, Chris, because this is really fascinating. You really are are taking us through this evolution, and it is an evolution of the James Beard Foundation. You know, many years ago, people knew it as an awards, an awards show for great, as you said, mostly fine dining restaurants, but really a chance to clink glasses and toast great restaurants. And now, what do you think is responsible for that evolution? Was it leadership? Who brought the idea that the James Beard Foundation could really stand for more? and what they stood for. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. It has been the culmination of a lot of people's input over the years. It started under our former president, Susan Ungaro, as new trustees came into the fold and started kind of challenging us a little bit more, right? So a lot of position, people in positions of leadership saying, what should we be? We need to look to the future. How do we need to evolve? The industry is evolving. Therefore, we need to evolve as well. Our chef bootcamp program actually is celebrating 10 years this year. So just gives you an idea of how long ago this work actually started. And that was a trustee coming into the organization, Eric Kessler, who has a lot of experience in policy and saying, look, you know, I think chefs have, and other industry leaders have this incredible platform and voice. And when we're talking about policy and trying to change things in our country, you need powerful voices, influential voices, tastemakers, changemakers to be a part of that conversation. Mm. So he actually is the one that came in and said, I've seen this done in other sectors. I think JBF could be the convener, the, the trainer that really takes these industry leaders and says, look, this is how you put your voice to work to drive change when it wow. comes to policy, whether it's at the federal, the local, the state level. And so we piloted that program 10 years ago. So I think, you know, it started under Susan. There was input of people like Eric Kessler or Chef Michel Nishan, who was very instrumental in a lot of those conversations early on and helped also to start the boot camp program. 
And when you fast forward over a period of time, and then our current CEO, Claire, joined us about four and a half years ago. And it was part of, I mean, I think this says a lot about leadership. It was a part of the remit for the new CEO's position that this is the direction that we're going. We need to figure out the strategy and how to take this take this from zero to a hundred in terms of where the Beard Foundation is going. And when Claire came in is really when we codified our mantra of good food for good. Mm. And I would say, again, we had been kind of on that path of how do you bring together the enjoyment and gastronomy and what happens you know, around a table, which is what the Beard Foundation is known for and very much stands for. But how do you intersect that with the work of creating a better food world, mm. right? One that is more delicious, of course, but environmentally sustainable, more equitable for people of color and women. Mm -hmm. How do you mush all that together? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And how do you do that in a way that's easy to digest? Sorry for the pun. Mm -hmm. And that's when the kind of rallying cry of good food for good came to be this idea of bringing together good food but the mission piece of our work, which is the for good element, where those things intersect. And so it's been the culmination of lots of people's hard work and vision. And I think, you know, pushing to get to the next chapter. And I, I would just finish by saying, I think we were on this path. And then, of course, March of 2020, that inflection point, which, you know, then lasted for years continues to last, frankly, <laughs> right. yes. forced a lot of change in a lot of organizations. And for us, that really expedited the journey that we were on. Mm -hmm. We were already on this path of moving into a mission-first organization, less transactional in nature, more focused on impact and outcomes. And then when the bottom dropped out for our industry in March of 2020, we said, oh my gosh, this is like, mission critical for our industry, we've yes. got to step up and, and be there for them. It's interesting that so many chefs have such a unique point of view. I mean, they food, we know that food is a wonderful way to talk about the language of culture, right? And that no matter what part of this country you're in, whether you are in Kansas City, and you're sitting down to some barbecue, the food and the plate and the restaurant and the chef and everything speaks not only to where you are, but to the politics, the culture, and the story. And so it really makes what you're saying makes so much sense that you have all of these incredible people in the hospitality industry who are coming from such a unique point of view and have so much to bring to the table again, sorry for the pun about the world of food and what we can do to sort of elevate humanity. It's almost like it, it, it was always an idea that was talked about, but now you're being to use your word incredibly intentional about the possibility of what could be with this incredible industry. I think about Chef Eric Williams from Chicago in Hyde Park. I live in Chicago and I recently interviewed Chef Eric for the podcast and his perspective, not only he didn't grow up in Hyde Park, but that's where Virtue is, his restaurant. He grew up um, west of the city within the time that he spent with his grandmother and he is Chicago, right? So his perspective on being an African-American in Chicago is so valuable. And what he can bring to the table from that perspective for what you're doing is so valuable. So you amplify that with 100 
chefs all over the country and what they can bring. And you have something really, really special. As you look forward as president of the James Beard Foundation, what gets you excited? What are you thrilled to talk about and what direction are you hoping to bring the foundation? I am incredibly excited about where we are in this moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has been a very difficult couple of years for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't want to minimize that. How do you think the pandemic changed dining? And do you think we'll ever return to pre-pandemic ways? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think that I am hopeful that the pandemic has brought a newfound appreciation and awareness for consumers of the role that restaurants and independent establishments play in our lives. You know, I think back to summer of 2020 and the fact that there was visibility in the general public of the plight of restaurants and this idea that imagine that place where you go to dinner every Friday with your family, not being here at the end of this. Right. And the fact that that was resonant for the dining public and that there started to be a conversation in the mainstream about how hard it is to run an independent restaurant, the very narrow margins, mm-hmm. right? The lack of safety nets, no paid time off, no sick time off, no health care in most institutions, right? For me, I'm going to paint that as an optimistic positive that the fact that that was brought into the conversation, the cultural conversation, I'm really hopeful that we can continue, right? That there continues to be a true appreciation from consumers about what these establishments contribute to our daily lives Mm -hmm. and an understanding of why we need to continue to support restaurants. Mm -hmm. I do think we have a long way to go. There are a lot of issues (laughs) with the independent restaurant model. And as we try to tackle those as an industry, a living wage for everybody, whatever that might look like. What is the future of tipping in this industry, whatever that might look like or not? How do you provide healthcare for people who work? You know, I'm going back to Jane when I was a waiter. I stepped off a curb in New York City and rolled my ankle and was on crutches for four weeks oh. and was without was without income for four weeks. Yeah. Right. Just like that's can't rough. work as a waiter right. and no health insurance. <laughs> and it's just like it's that's just begging my parents for money to make rent, right? You right. Know? that was the situation. And so again, to be positive about it, I'm really hopeful that this, now that it's come into the conversation that stays in the conversation, right. That we can continue to have consumers become more and more aware and appreciative of all of the things that make a restaurant run Mm. in this moment. It includes, you know, why is everything getting so expensive? Right. Right. Um, Why is a burger and fries at an independent restaurant $27 (laughs) when I can get it at you know, McDonald's for whatever I can get it for. Trying to demystify those inputs is part of the work that needs to continue to happen, I think, so that consumers can understand the value that they're getting in that experience, the supply chain that they're supporting, the people that they're supporting, the quality of the product that they're getting versus things that may be supported by commodities, you know, et cetera. I'm hopeful. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that, you know, people are like, gosh, two years of not eating out. And so now I'm just loving it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe I do it less frequently because it's more expensive, but this means a lot to me and as Mm -hmm. a part of my life. And I do hope that we can continue that education so that consumers continue to extend grace to the people in their favorite restaurants um, and understand 
how challenging it continues to be, honestly. Labor shortage, food costs, inflation, back debt from COVID, you name it, they're still yeah. fighting a lot. You bring up such a great point, Chris, and that is the 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 really depth of understanding that people seem to have that they never thought about before when 2020 hit and they, they, the the compassion, you could see the compassion for restaurants and people really rallied around their favorite restaurant. And it was really beautiful to see, you know, the places that really tug on your heartstrings and that people were, were willing to fight for their neighborhood restaurant. I think that that emotion and seeing that story unfold was uh, as someone in in the in food journalism, I love to see that. But you're right; so many restaurants did not survive. It was a very dark time too. And so, I, I'm I I want to apologize. I kind of cut you off because you were about to talk about your vision moving forward for the James Beard Foundation and what you're most excited about. Yes, can I before I answer that just say yeah. if there's one thing I would want to impart to your listeners on that last point mm-hmm. that I think continues to now in this moment be be the point of frustration for independent restaurants is we are not out of the woods. Mm. And the sense I have been getting from talking to chefs and restaurateurs across the country is that because doors are open and restaurants seem full, it has kind of fallen out of people's consciousness, the consideration that restaurants are still really struggling. Mm -hmm. And the reality is restaurants are still very much struggling given what's happening in, in so many different aspects. So I just, I feel like I have to make that point to a listening audience um, that we're still very much in the thick of the woods at the moment. Yes. But in terms of what I'm excited about in the future, I, you know, I think we have so much on the horizon at the Beard Foundation. The last two years have given us the opportunity to take a look at everything that we do and to make sure that all of our programs and our events, including the James Beard Awards, map toward our vision, our mission and the change that we're trying to foster in this industry. We just, after a two-year hiatus, completed our first Beard Award cycle, actually Eric Williams, recent James mm-hmm. Beard Award winner, that took place in Chicago last month. And after a full-year audit of the Beard Awards process, looking at every aspect of the awards, the policies, procedures, committees, categories, how do people get nominated, what does voting look like, really through a lens of how do we make that program more accessible, more inclusive, and more reflective of what the James Beard Foundation stands for. Mm. And in terms of what I'm excited about, I'm excited that we completed that audit, we constituted a new awards platform, and we've now completed the first cycle of giving awards within that new structure. And to me, it was one of the most profound experiences I've had since I've been at the Beard Foundation Mm. to be at the awards in June and to see the evolution of that program, mm. the evolution of the folks who are on the semifinalists list, the nominees, the winners, to hear the speeches, to see the diversity represented in the room, and to recognize that this is more of what food in America actually looks like. It's palpable. And to see that reflected on the stage was a very humbling speechless moment for me. I mean, even just on the red carpet, right? Everybody choosing to wear their traditional dress, whatever that might be, right? It's black tie formal, but people rolling up and whatever that meant to them, acceptance speeches on stage in various language, right? Native tongues. To me, it was just 
it was profound. And that is for me what I'm most excited about because the awards is what we are best known for, mm-hmm. right? The, as you said, the Oscars of the food industry, or maybe we want to, you know, coin a new frame there, whatever it may <laughs> be. But for us to try to make over that program, because it's our biggest lever of change, and then to make sure that everything else we do ladders up to that, right? That it is about supporting people on the journey in all of these areas, environmental sustainability, racial and gender equity, you know, workplace culture and safety nets, and really, really a culture in the restaurant industry where everybody has the opportunity to thrive, that all ladders up to the James Beard Awards for us. And so for me, that's the work that I'm just incredibly motivated by this idea of the Beard Foundation trying to lead the industry forward to be more inclusive and more reflective of what food in America actually looks like. Chris, first of all, I've loved this conversation so much. You have surprised me at every turn. I did not know you were from Kansas. I did not know that you studied music, uh, that you were a a professional pianist, that you were a singer. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And what I think must make you so proud is that you have been a part of the James Beard Foundation for 15 years and have been a, had a first row seat for this incredible evolution and change for good that this foundation is not only trying to do, but is doing in this country. So thank you for your time. I wish we were at Chouquette, (laughs) perhaps uh, raising a glass and clinking glasses, but one day I hope I get to meet you. But thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation and we will. We will have that dinner at Chouquette. Sounds fun. Thanks so much, Chris. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefortwithkatesullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.